All right, so listen, we continue in our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, as I share with you. I never had preached on the Ten Commandments, so, so this has been a real challenge to me, but I'm excited about it, and um, I'm hoping that we're learning something about the Ten Commandments, but also about the Bible, but how the Ten Commandments actually all point to the New Testament and, and the teachings of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna try to tie all, that, tie all that together. So as I, just a refresher, you know, last week we started with the First Commandment, and the First Commandment, has everything with this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of uh, Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so, um, you know, just a reminder, once again, we have the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. They're called the Ten Words in the ancient tradition. Uh, you know, Moses had led the children of Israel out of bondage. Of course, they were, you know, we went to the burning bush experience. He was at Mount Sinai. He led the, went back. God says, tell, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He conv- finally convinced them after all the plagues. They take this journey and it takes them about three months to finally get back to Mount Sinai. It comes full circle. So as, um, as we learned from last week, God's up on the mountain with, the, with Moses and he hears the voice that, and he begins to tell the children of Israel what the Ten Commandments are. Now he doesn't, at this point he hasn't written them down. He just speaks them. That's why they're called the Ten Words. He speaks them first and then he writes them down. And so what's reminded today, once again, how does this all together connect? Because once again, you go back to the greatest command. Because we have the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words and the first four have to do with our relationship with God and how do we honor God, or how we can dishonor God. And the next six have to do with relationship with each other, have to do with their honoring each other, or, t- or dishonoring each other, or, or the idea of uh, honoring our parents, or honoring our neighbor. And so once again, in the Ten Commandments, if you, once again, they're not called the Ten Suggestions, they are called the Ten, really, they are the Ten Requirements of ethical, living an ethical life. And they teach us something about life, each and every one of them. So when you put them together, once again, you got to love God with all your heart, soul, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. There they are, all 10 of them. And so as we we find the truth of this uh, today, um, it really is an amazing thing because I I started as, once again, this particular, we're going to talk about the second command today. And and what I found myself, by the way, the title of my sermon today is from an empty throne to an empty tomb. As a matter of fact, here's a picture of the empty, well, go back to the first slide, to the empty, yeah. Okay, so that is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And so I'm going to teach you in just a few minutes a little bit about how that is ultimately the, the th- considered the throne of God. And then it moves forward towards, and I call it to the empty tomb. And this is the garden tomb, which is one of the, considered one of the holiest places in all the world. That's one of my favorite places. When I go to Israel, we have Holy Communion Day, and in some regard, that is the place in which Jesus is actually resurrected from the dead. So how does that all connect from an empty throne to an empty tomb? Well, we're going to get there. So as I think about this today, let me just read to you all the, the, the second of the commands. By the way, um, um, before we get there um, and read this to you, I'm reminded today about, once again, this, the first of the commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. And as I shared with you all last week, most of us have a tendency to think of the first of the commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. But as I taught last week, you've got to pay attention to the detail because the word there, I am the Lord your God. And the word Lord in English, when you look at it in your Bibles, and the Exodus 20, it means Yahweh. And that literally translation is that what God is saying is I am the source of life. I am the ultimate, the source of the existence of life. I am the sustainer of life. 
And so you should, if I'm the source of life and I'm the one who can put the, you know, put the st- stars in the heaven and the sand in the sea and I can number all those, then, then ultimately you can't possibly, can't possibly put anything in front of me, can you? And God says, once, once again, I shared with you all last week, the title of my sermon last week is God is not gonna play second fiddle. Is not, he is t- definitely gonna play second fiddle in your life and my life or the world's life. And here are the five questions I shared with you all last week as kind of a heart check about where we are as far as putting anything in front of God. Here they are. What claims our highest allegiance? Number two, what are we most devoted to? Number three, what has the greatest influence in our lives? Number four, what do you love more than anything else? And number five, what is the greatest source of our security? Five questions to think about, are we putting anything in front of God? So here's the second command today, and so um, here's how it goes, and this is, I'm reading this from actually from the, the common English version, and this is how it goes. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, anything in the sky above or on the earth below or the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, your God am a passionate God. Now some translations say there I'm a jealous God and some translations actually say I am, am a passionate God. And I like both translations actually because when you think about God being jeal- a jealous God, it means once again, God wants to be number one. He, wants, he doesn't want to play second fiddle. But I love this idea that God is not only a jealous God, but he's also so passionate about me and you. I mean, how often in our lives, and what I love about the, our Wesleyan tradition is it weighs so heavily on grace. I don't know about you all, but there have been times in my life that I have messed up. Has anybody messed up royally, right? And so the beautiful thing that we find over and over again, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the truth that we find in the Old Testament is that God is a God of second chances. He's passionate about us. He loves us. And I think I'm so grateful for that. So let me just teach for a second. So, um, and so that do not make an idol. Did you do not, you and I, do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever or anything like that. Now, what in the world is God talking about when he says, do not make an idol for yourself, any kind of figure or any kind of, any kind of thing that you might be able to handcraft for yourself to become something that would be the image of me? Well, let me just share a, a little bit about history. So let's go back to the idea, and one of the greatest images, I think, of God that we have that's ever been created was a guy by the name of Michelangelo. I love Michelangelo's uh, artwork. As a matter of fact, here's a picture of uh, his idea of what God would look like, okay? And I just love that image of God. It's there in the, um, the Vatican. I've actually seen that in person, and maybe you all have seen it, and it's considered a masterpiece. As a matter of fact, not only is it a masterpiece, but they call it the masterpiece within the masterpiece when God is actually touching, and that is Adam's finger. It's, it's just an incredible piece of artwork. So I, what I love about that, I mean, that's the big buff God, isn't it? He's got the kind of like the hair flowing. He's got the angels flowing underneath his arms. And he's this big bulky God who represents strength. I mean, so in Michelangelo's vision of what God would look like, that's what he thought that he would look like. Now, um, and I like that. I mean, it's a pretty good, a, you know, if, if you were going to put an image on God, that's a pretty good image. So that's Michelangelo's version of what God looks like. So let me show you what the Egyptians look like, what they think what God would look like. There they are. I like, I like Michelangelo's better, as one should know. 
And, and so, um, matter of fact, <clears throat> those are four gods that they worshiped. Um, the first one is a god of the, they call it the creator god, Ptah, and um, it had to do with like craftsmanship. Um, the, the second one had to do with called Amon, which had to do um, with, um, once again, the, the creation of, of air. And then the next one was the um, god of Ra, which was co- well connected with the sun. He was considered one of the greatest gods. And then the last one is Ramses II. And what's significant about Ramses II is because he was considered like the pharaoh of all the greatest all the greatest pharaohs. You've heard of Herod the Great. He was a, um, during Jesus' time, um, he was leader of the, uh, the Palestinian area. And so he was heralded as one of the greatest rulers of the time, and he was called Herod the Great. Well, that was basically Pharaoh the Great of his time. So they, once again, they made him a god. And pharaohs were actually considered somewhat semi-connected to gods. They were kind of like divinity on earth. So the children, so the, so the Egyptians would go to these these gods and they would worship them. And now what's very interesting is about this is those four, four particular gods were in a place called the Holy of Holies. Now where have we heard that? Well, actually, if you go back and you look at Solomon's temple, the actual blueprint of Solomon's temple actually was somewhat of a copy or a similar to what we find in the temple that they were actually in Egypt were making for their, for their gods. And so in the midst of the Egyptian temples, before Solomon's temple was built, there was actually a place called the Holy of Holies. And the, inside the Holy of Holies were those four statues. And the four statues were considered gods. Now, of course, they were just... They were just objects. They were just made out of stone until the priest came in and did this ceremony, this kind of a blessing over them, and it was called the opening of the mouths. And somehow in the midst of that, these gods actually became, well, true gods. And so people would go to the Holy of Holies and to be able to go and worship their pagan gods. They believed that. Now, what I think is very interesting when you put this all in perspective is that, once again, when we think about in the temple of God, uh, Solomon's temple, the very beginning, what the children in Israel do? Well, they would go to the temple and they would worship. In the midst of the temple, they would have this place called the Holy of Holies. And guess what was in the Holy of Holies? Can you show that picture for me of the Ark? The Ark of the Covenant. They had a lampstand there, which had to do with the, the light of, of God. They would have incense in there. And so the priest would go to the Holy of Holies. It was considered the most holy, sacred place you could ever be on the planet Earth. And what did it hold? It held the Ark of the Covenant. And what is in sight of the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. And so when we, when we think about this, then people would go and they would be able to go and just, once again, the difference between what we find in our historical part of the Pharaohs, but also what's different from what we find in their connection to our Judaic, Christian tradition that we have in the, from the Jewish people is it's very powerful because once again, the, the, the ark represented the presence of God. It didn't, repre- it didn't represent God himself. The people didn't go and worship the ark. But they really believed that the ark represented because the Ten Commandments in it, it represented the presence of God. Now, I also, also understand, back in the end of the day, once again, you have to understand the context. Why would God say, hey, listen, you're not be able to have any other gods before me, but by the way, do not make anything handcrafted. Do not kind of create an image for me. 
Now, what's very interesting is because back then, once again, you gotta look at how the children of Israel coming out of this, this tradition of Pharaoh and all their gods. By the way, they didn't have just, well, they didn't have like five or six, they had thousands of them, right? And so their gods represented, I mean, a lot of times they had the images of their gods. And so what were the images like? Well, they had an owl, well, a crocodile, they had a cow, they had a horse, they had, uh, you know, they had cats, they had dogs. So they had all these different images, right? of these little gods. Matter of fact, they, they even had household gods. And the household gods, I call them the shop and go 7-Eleven gods. I love that, isn't it? Um, they we could go, just go, maybe on the, you could go on the street and you could pick up an image of a god and you could take that home. And that was your household god. Matter of fact, even in their tradition, then, you know, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Joseph's mother was named Rachel. And Rachel, when her and uh, Jacob were actually about to leave their home country and leaving a particular area, she actually went back and stole one of her her father's household gods to take her, take the God with her in order to, once again, it reminds us of the struggle that the children, even the children of Israel had throughout history trying to cling to these ancient gods because they wanted something visible. They wanted something tangible. They needed that. And this is the history that we find out of the historical part of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And so we look at this story and it's very powerful. Matter of fact, here's an interesting twist and we're gonna find this in the scripture in just a minute, is that they would, the Egyptians would even, they would throw festival for their pagan gods. And they would be, have a, like a big party. Matter of fact, they even go and collect their gods and put them on boats and take them on boat rides. Hey, it's a weekend, let's take our gods for a boat ride. So they would take them and move them around and they have these big festivals, okay? And so I'm gonna tell you in just a minute where how that ties into the text today. So we have the children of Israel, they're out, and so we, and they're on the mountain, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, and they have these, once again, they are looking for some kind of security. They need something visible. They need something tangible. And so all of a sudden, we find in the story is that Moses goes up, you ready? He goes up to Mount Sinai, and it takes him, well, it takes him to see 40 days. Now, where have we heard that before? 40 days is important, isn't it? I mean, like Noah's Ark rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, when Jesus went, was out and he was being tempted in the desert by the devil, uh, we find that he was out there for, once again, he fasted for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. How long does Moses go up to the mountain in Mount Sinai to be able to receive the Ten Commandments? How long does that take? 40 days and 40 nights consistent, isn't it? So in the midst of those 40 days, guess what happens to the children of Israel? You all know the story from Sunday school. They get antsy, get ants in their pants. They need, they, they want something. Hey, and so they go to Aaron and Aaron is Moses's brother and say, hey, Aaron, listen, I, I, we don't have a clue what Moses is doing up there. You, uh, listen, let's make, we need to make a, so make a God's and in order for us to have something, once again, something visible and something tangible for us to follow, that we need some sense of direction because we don't know how long it's gonna take for him. And so they literally force Aaron in order to make some kind of God. And what's very interesting about this part of the story is that Aaron caves to him. He says, all right, well, I tell you what, y'all go, go collect all your gold earrings and let's gather them up and let's come up with some kind of image that reflects this image of God. And so let me show you the image of what they came up with. This would be called the golden calf. 
It's not just any calf, but it was a, it was a bull calf. And, and, the, and the symbolism had to do with, once again, out of their tradition, had to do with the strength of a cow or a bull or a bull calf. And so out of all the images they could have chosen, they chose this particular image to reflect who God really is. Now what's very interesting about this is, let's just put this in perspective. So we have no, that you shall not have any other gods before me. I'm not gonna play second fiddle, but then don't even think about God says. Don't even think about the second commandment. Trying to create something that really depicts who I really am as a God. Now that's actually very, very powerful. Uh, because what God is saying, and once again, you gotta go back to the first commandment. When God says, listen, I am the Lord your God, Lord, as in Yahweh. I am the one who is the author of the existence of life. I'm the one who sustains life. I'm the one who's given you life. How in the world can you create some kind of image if, if I'm the one who can, actually, the creator of all the universe, you just can't possibly, possibly, possibly create some kind of image that actually captures the essence of who I am. So don't even think about it. What do they do? Exactly what God asked them not to do. So Moses is up on the mountain. I love this part of the story. Okay, so Moses is up on top of the mountain. He's been up there for a long time, for 40 days. And all of a sudden, God says, hey, Moses, you need to get down there fast because you're, our, our, my children of Israel are falling. The train has become derailed. And, and, and by the way, I love this part of the story. Basically, God says, Moses, you need to go down and have a come to Jesus with them, Right? This is this has gone really bad. This has really gone south. And so Moses takes the Ten Commandments that God has actually etched into these these tablets and and are the ten words. And he goes down off of Mount Sinai, which would not have been an easy journey. Imagine Moses is tired. He's been up there for 40 days. He's frustrated because he knows basically what he's gonna find. And so when he finally comes down off the mountain, which is very interesting, what does he find then? Because even Aaron said, he says, we will create this God or this, this image and he creates the golden calf and let us tomorrow create a festival for it. Where'd he get that? He got it from all the ancient gods that they had done and once again, had been part of their tradition because they'd been in Pharaoh, they'd been a part of Egypt and this is what they would do. They would celebrate all the ancient gods. They had these big festivals and they had the boat rides and they did that. So what does Aaron do? He's doing exactly what they had been doing back in Egypt. So when Moses comes down off the mountain and he's carrying those 10 commandments, he sees the festival. He sees what they have done in that golden calf and what they had created with the golden earrings. And he is ticked. He is out of his mind. He is angry. He is frustrated. And you can't blame him. So he gets so frustrated, we know this part of the story from Sunday school, is he takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them down and he breaks them. Now I had to ask myself this question this last week and I actually did the research and I said, why in the world did Moses actually break the Ten Commandments? Is it just because out of frustration? Is he because he was just so angry? Is he just because he was beside himself and he completely lost his mind? I mean, after all, he had the 10 commandments. God had just given them to him. And I mean, they're right out of the gate. I mean, they're, the smoke is still coming off the granite. You know, it's just amazing. And yet he takes and what's he do? He breaks the 10 commandments. So I thought this was a very inter interesting interpretation I read this last week. 
Moses wished to punish the Israelites severely when he beheld that they were unworthy of the precious gift he carried. Let me say that again. Moses wished to basically punish the Israelites severely when they didn't really have a clue they were because they, re- they were completely unworthy of the precious gift that Moses carried. And, and you know what? I, I start to reflect upon this. Once again, we have to think about who we are as, as Christians because so often I think that when we have broken the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words that we have strayed from the path and we have become derailed, How often do we forget the precious gift of God's amazing grace found through Jesus Christ and the salvation that we can receive in the gift of everlasting life? How often when we go through this life, I mean, each and every day, we fall so short, we sin, and, we, and then we repent, and we ask for forgiveness over and over and over again, but how often do we forget the precious gift what God has given to us and what through Jesus Christ of his love. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, God says. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor yourself. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And Jesus says this, I give you a brand new command. Love just as I have taught you to love. That's who we follow. Now, what's very interesting about this part of the story, and once again, don't miss the details. So, um, the little translation there, let me just once again teach for a second. When, when the children of Israel says, let, uh, we want you to, Aaron, we want you to make, some, make gods, and the word gods there is a very imp- interesting word. It's an important word, okay? Because the little translation in the Hebrew actually is more singular than rather than plural. So when it looks like make us multiple gods, like, okay, well, let's make a cow god, and let's make a horse god, and let's make a goat god, let's make, you know, let's make all these different gods. That's not really what they were saying. They were saying, why we just want, basically, we want one god. And the word gods there actually is an interpretation. Matter of fact, there are seven different key words that actually are names for God. And like for, one of them is called El, one's called El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahweh. Okay, so you have these different names. And the word there, gods, is actually connected to the word Elohim. It's also translated to the, one of the seven key words that we have referenced for God in the Old Testament. And so what the children were actually saying, they said, well, we don't really want a pagan God. We don't really want another God that represents air. We don't want a God that represents the sun. We don't want a God that represents Ramses. We, we totally get that. We want an image of God who ultimately is a representation of Elohim, who is actually God. The one that we, you know, we believe that God has brought us out. The one true God, one God, it's really not plural, but one true God, So let's come up with an image for the one true God. And what is God's response to that? God says, listen, you cannot, there is no way, because I'm the author of life, I'm the sustainer of life, I'm the source of life, I'm the one who can actually put the stars in the heaven, I can be able to number the sands on the sea, there is no way that you can possibly, by your hands, craft something, and don't even think about it, it could possibly be a golden calf, because you're so wrong. There's no way you can possibly create some kind of image that really depicts who I am. So the children of Israel weren't trying to make some kind of pagan god or multiple gods. They're actually trying to focus on one god who would actually capture the essence of who Yahweh, Elohim, or El Shaddai, or Shaddai, or El, or Elohim would rightly represent. 
Now, what's very interesting about this, once again, we have to think about the part of the story, the content of the story. So God tells Moses that he, he gives them the Ten Commandments, he breaks the Ten Commandments, he actually comes up with another ten, set of Ten Commandments, but he also says, listen, I want you to understand something. I want you to create basically a box to keep the Ten Commandments. And what do we call that? The Ark of the Covenant. Matter of fact, you got a picture of this? Can you put that picture back up with the Ark of the Covenant? Okay, so listen, what's very interesting, let me just tell you this. Do you realize that the Ark of Covenant has some actually different, well, kind of different meanings from the standpoint, some people call it the, the footstool of Almighty God. But it's also known as, can you put this back up for me for real quick? It's also known as the mercy seat of God. Do you get that? So they have the two cherubs who are sitting with these, like these angels that are sitting and they actually looks like they're making a seat. So the Ark of the Covenant, it sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant is these angels, these cherubs, whose wings reach out across and it makes like a platform in which where God could actually sit. But what's interesting compared to all the other gods that have come and gone, there is no image on top of the Ark that sits on top of the mercy seat. It is empty. By the way, the title of my sermon today is from an empty throne to an empty tomb. So compared to all the other times in which people try to replicate, replicate their gods, either through a horse or a cow or, or an alligator or a cat or a dog, God says, that's not gonna work for me. By the way, don't, I'm, I'm not gonna play second fiddle to anybody because I'm gonna be only number one. You know what, because I am the creator, I'm the Lord your God, I'm Elohim. There is no one could possibly create an image of who I really am. So when you look at the mercy seat, it is the throne of God, but there is no image there, it's empty. So we find this part of the story, and I think it's very interesting. I love this, I read this this last week, when, you, when the idea of God saying, listen, you really just can't capture the image of who I am. Once upon a time, back in the 1950s, there's a guy by the name of uh, uh, Graham uh, Sutherland, and he was considered the, the greatest artist in England at the time, and they actually, um, they commissioned him to paint a picture of Winston Churchill. And so Churchill was turning 80 and they wanted this great rendering of this one of the greatest leaders in English history. He was the one who helped them pull through the World War II. It was just an amazing job. So they wanted to do something nice for Winston Churchill and they wanted this beautiful portrait. And so they commissioned the best artists in England to be able to capture the essence of who Winston Churchill really was in order for it to be hung in Parliament and would be there for basically forever. Okay, so uh, Sutherland painted this painting and they actually gave it to Churchill and here's a picture of Churchill this is a picture of him that they this is the actual painting evidently and you know what's interesting is Churchill hated it <laughs> and Mrs. Churchill hated it matter of fact it was rumored to have evidently she took it down one day Mrs. Churchill and burned it because he hated it so much which I thought was interesting is that somehow in the midst of Churchill's perhaps his ego no one could truly capture the essence of who he really was. God says you can't capture the true essence of who I am by creating something, molding something. And by the way, I'm not gonna play second fiddle. 
So I close with this thought today, and I think this is really important. So let's just connect this about the idea about, you know, the idea of idols. And so I don't know about you all, but, you know, it's interesting. God is, uh, Jesus is very clear about idols. Matter of fact, I mentioned this last week. You know, I gave up, I handed up, I hold it, held up a $20 bill, and it says, in God we trust, right? And the reason why is that goes back in the night, eight, around in the 1880s, so a Baptist pastor commissioned the treasury and said, listen, you know, we're so focused on money here in the country. We, we, we gotta have something that reminds us because once again, what does Jesus say? You can't worship God and you can't worship your money. Does it work? And so often in our lives, we can actually, once again, the idea Jesus talks a lot about money. But also, you know what, there are other things I think that can actually stand before us and become an idol and we don't even realize it. For example, and you may think I'm stretching this, but let me just share that like for, a, for example, you know, um, I was serving a church one time and our peop, my, my people really loved their church and I appreciate it and they loved the building. Matter of fact, what's very interesting is that um, um, they, they um, I, and there was a, a group of people in our church who not only did they love their building, but they really loved the kitchen. <laughs> and what they had in the kitchen was Dishes, and some when, I, I'll never forget this. Went to upon a time they um, they came to the church and some, somebody really wanted to borrow some of the dishes for some kind of maybe it was another church or something. I don't remember, but I just remember that they voted down. You cannot borrow our dishes. Do you know, I tell you something? Those dishes probably have been sitting there for years and years and years, and all they've done is collected dust. I give you another story. Uh, we, we, my friend Fred Kringary and I had this great vision. We actually um, built a beautiful playground on the church property. We didn't actually ask the trustees. We just did it. And um, that didn't go over real well, but we did it anyway. And we begged for forgiveness. And so it was fine. And we got over that, right? Okay, so, so Fred and I helped, you know, we built this. I just said, Fred, that's a great idea. And he wanted to do it in memory of his wife, Barbara, who loved children. And I'll never forget this. And so we built this beautiful, and the children came. It was beautiful because it's in the middle. The church was in the middle of a neighborhood. And we thought it would be great to do something for the children. So the children came, they played in the playground. It was just beautiful until one day somebody, well, evidently we don't know if it's a kid or somebody threw a rock through one of the church windows. And so guess what happened next? After I left, they tore the playground down. Do you see how so often in our lives that sometimes even, you know, I, you think about some of the greatest churches in history all around. They, and like, I think about the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Matter of fact, I got a picture of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. We're gonna go back there in uh, March of next year. It is one of the most holy places in the world. It's, it's a very sacred place. It's the actual place where some believe that Jesus was actually crucified and they built the church on top of it. Helena actually built this church back in 300 AD. It's just a fabulous place, but people don't go there well, I guess they could to go and worship the church. I mean, they have all these icons and all these relics, but it really is not about that. It's a holy place. We don't go there to worship the church. We go to worship Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, listen, you have to be really careful how you can make something an idol. I tell you, here's, I'm being really transparent. I remember for 10 years, I coached Little League Baseball. And I tell you, for those 10 years, I was almost obsessed with it. I'm just telling you, I, 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 would, I actually coached four different teams for four of my sons, all simultaneously. I would bounce them from baseball field, from baseball field to baseball field. And I was like, it's on this major drilling, and I just loved it. I thrived on it. But let me tell you something. I think that maybe during those 10 years, I think that maybe part of my idol was Little League Baseball. Because if you go through those five lists about you know what is the most important in your life and what is, holds your security, go through the checklist. 
It's very easy to slip into that. And God says, I'm not gonna play second fiddle and I don't even think about creating something or making something above me. So here's my last little thought today. Um, Last week at 11 o'clock, my friend Cindy Johnson, my wife's best friend, Cindy, you know, I shared with you all a few months ago in the middle of the pandemic, her husband, Anthony, died tragically of, um, of COVID. And they had just adopted, they had already adopted one son, um, um, Isaac, several years ago, and they had just adopted the four little children. They were in foster care. Matter of fact, here's a picture, and we took this last week. There's Cindy with her beautiful family. She drove down here all by herself with her in their minivan to come visit Donna and me, and then we had lunch together, and she came to see her family. And, and so you know what, here's the interesting, here's what I really believe, is that once again, our vision of our church is to be the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus Christ. Can we amen that? So when we think about the image of God, and we find it in the essence, and we look at Jesus Christ, he is God in the flesh. And so if we're gonna be thinking about who we really wanna be like, and if we really are wanting to be like God, we look at the image of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, love just as I have taught you to love. He has given us the supreme example of being selfless, but not selfish, not being greedy, not being haughty, not being narcissistic. There's nothing like that from Jesus. So Jesus teaches us about love and sacredness and truth and not taking the almighty God and put it upon him or creating something as simple as, simple as, a, as, a, as the dishes or a playground or a little league. Don't even think about putting that in front of me, God says. So you think about the image of who Jesus Christ is and about loving people. That's the image of God. This is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So no wonder when we think about worshiping Jesus Christ, we've gone from an empty throne to an empty tomb because when Jesus walked out of the tomb that day, we know exactly who he was and is and will always be. Can amen on that? So here's, here's where I'm going with that. So you know what happened with Cindy, and, and, uh, Cindy after Anthony died? Um, her children were all in private school. They went to a Christian school. And so after he died, the schoolmaster, the principal came to Cindy and she says, you know, I, I realize this is a very difficult time. And she knew that probably Cindy, there was no way that she could possibly afford to be able to put her children in school. And so keep them in school, going to private school. And so the schoolmaster, the principal said, listen, we're just gonna waive all that. So all five of your children can continue to come to our school free. Wow. See, to me, that is what I would call the image of Jesus Christ. That's just one simple, I don't know who the, who the school principal is, but it just tells me him or her seems to really get the image and living into the image of Jesus Christ. Here's the last thought for the day. Is um, I, last week, or about two or three weeks ago, I talked about loving your neighbor, right? And um, after I finished that sermon, I got a text from my friend, Beth Kazimierik. And um, Beth and Kaz were a part of my church before I came here 10 years ago. And, um, and I had talked about Mr. Rogers, okay? And in that, she says, Harold, you didn't know, but Kaz, her husband, his father actually was the cinematographer for Mitch's, Mr. Rogers, his uh, show for years and years and years. He, he was the one who was taking 
all the images and filming Mr. Rogers. My friend Kaz's father was doing that. Matter of fact, Kaz was on the set. He met Mr. Rogers, I guess, many, many times. And um, evidently, Kaz's father was very good friends with Mr. Rogers. And so he was just a, evidently, and I asked Beth that night after I preached that sermon, what was Mr. Rogers' life? And she says, Harold, evidently, he was exactly what you think he would have been. What you saw is what you got with Mr. Rogers. So this last week, I got a text from, um, from Beth again, and she says, she says, Harold, I just wanted to share this with you. So this is back in 1969. Mr. Rogers invited a black police officer to come and be on his show. Now, back in 1969, I want you to understand, you, the whites and the blacks were now allowed to actually, they, didn't, they would have separate swimming pools. So it was all separated. So the blacks and whites did not swim in the same swimming pools back in 1969. So what does Mr. Rogers do? He invites a black police officer to come on a show and they went for a swim together. But in this swim, it was not just some kind of big swimming pool. It was like one of those little baby pools. And they put their feet into the baby pool. And then after they pulled their feet out, Mr. Rogers says, oh, let me dry your feet off. And here is the image of Mr. Rogers washing that black police officer's feet. Where have we seen this before? See, to me, that is, back in 1969, is the image of Jesus Christ. That is living in to the vision that we have at New Company and High Methodist Church to be the hands and the feet and the voice of the one that God has created us to be. By the way, in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that you and I are created in the image of God. And we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. Yahweh, El Shaddai, Elohim. Lord, we're grateful for the day you've given to us and for your love and your grace and for your forgiveness. And thank you so much for teaching us today about the second commandment that you teach us. There, you can, there is nothing that we could possibly be able to create in order to capture the true essence of who you are. But Lord, let us continue to live in to what you taught us to be. So we're thankful for the greatest command to love you with everything that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus Christ, we pray and all God's children said, amen and amen.